Hey, everyone. This is a special roundtable episode, different from our usual format. In this roundtable, we will dish about everything that has happened just past the midway point of the season. So if you haven't seen episodes one through seven of season two yet, just pause us, go watch the show, and then come back and meet us here. Hi, guys, and welcome back to the For All Mankind podcast. I am your host, Chris Marshall, and today we got another juicy roundup, roundtable. Roundabout. What is this? This is a roundtable. <laughs> um, today, we are going to be talking to executive producer, writer extraordinaire, Ben Nadivi, uh, castmate and gorgeous gal, Jody Balfour, and, oh gosh, my heart, my soul, Ren Schmidt. Hi, guys. Welcome. <laughs> Hello. Hi. So, just let's go around the room. Ren, I'll start with you. Give us your name, who you play. And um, just a little hello to the audience. Hi, my name is Ren Schmidt. I play Margot Madison. And I'm really excited to chat a little bit about this. I feel like when we're on set and we're we're shooting, I don't tend to think of the the show in like bigger thematic terms or I don't know. I just am like, you think scene by scene. So it's really exciting mm-hmm. to me that we're gonna have an opportunity to talk about what the story is from a different vantage point. So, yeah. Awesome. Jody, tell us who you are. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I didn't know it was this kind of podcast. Start, um, start with the trauma and then work yes. backward. Okay. Yes. Age five. Um, <laughs> hi, I'm Jody. I play Ellen Wilson on the show, formerly Ellen Waverly. And um, yeah, I just echo everything Ren just said. It's really wonderful especially um, the dork in me enjoys this sort of retrospective thematic debate and discussion. Um, I get really excited about storytelling in general, and uh, it's nice to zoom out from my tiny piece of the pie to talk about Mm. the story as as a whole. So very happy to be here. Definitely. Okay, Ben. Hi, I'm Ben Adivi. I'm a writer, executive producer, co-creator, a lot of other hyphens probably there. And uh, <laughs> this is really exciting actually to, to sit with you guys and get to hear what you actually think about the show and, and what's going on with the writing and everything. So I'm going to do some research here and just really get some <laughs> intel from you guys. <laughs> That's what I was hoping to do was get intel right. from you. <laughs> Uh-oh. Before we dive in, here's a quick refresher. After learning that Aleda Rosales, the young STEM prodigy from Mexico, is now on the brink of being deported, JSC director Margo Madison reunites with Aleda to invite her to come work for NASA. Also reunited are Ellen Wilson and outpost bartender-turned-poet Pam Horton, and Ellen wants to go public with their relationship. But just as Ellen is ready to leave NASA to make a life with Pam, she becomes interim administrator in the wake of Thomas Paine's death. As tensions continue to build between the Soviets and the Americans, the Apollo-Soyuz joint mission remains in question. And on top of all that, there are officially guns on the moon. Okay, first things first. Let's just talk about this 10-year spans between season one and season two. Um, Now, I know I already brought this concept up at the last roundtable, but since we have different people here today, 
we got to bring it up again. Uh, so I'm going to start with you, Ben. Um, when you guys dive into the story and you've got Ellen with a new position at JSC and Margot's got her new position, um, talk to us about how do you find your way into where these characters are 10 years later? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the exciting elements of this show is the ability to tell the story of, of people's lifetimes. As writers, you know, you think about how much you've changed in your life. And what's, I think, kind of interesting about that is you realize you don't really change that much. I mean, I even think, even as a kid, I think a lot of the things, experiences you had when you were younger, they stay with you, they form you. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that what's exciting with this show is we can not only show that trajectory for people in their 20s, 30s, but also the kids, you know, the kids of actors and how, mm -hmm. you know, how they change and evolve. So I think... We really look at every character differently. Is there anyone that has surprised you that um, storyline-wise you thought that they would do one thing and then along the way it's almost like you threw the baby out with the bathwater because you're like, this is totally different from how I saw he or she, you know, going? Yeah, I mean, a lot. That's kind of one of the exciting elements, I think, is that you can change. I think Pam, for instance, right, mm. uh, who's played by the wonderful Megan Leathers, mm -hmm. um, she's a bartender in the first few episodes. I know what our intention was with her character in terms of starting that love story with Ellen. But to tell you that I knew how integral she would be to the first season, I don't think we did mm -hmm. in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It kind of built itself. I think even your character, Danielle, started in this as a smaller role. Um, and I think as, you know, as the season went, it, it seemed to, I don't know, it seemed to get bigger and we seemed to write more into her storyline. Um, so you do find things, I think, with the actors, but also with the storylines the fun thing about television as opposed to movies, you can you can change, you can evolve as you go. It's mm -hmm. not set in stone from the beginning. Welcome. Thank you. Very excited to have you over on the administrative side, Helen. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Here you got the good coffee over here. Just don't go following in his footsteps too closely. <laughs> she could do worse, believe me. Well, I'm sorry your first meeting as deputy administrator is about something as exciting as budgets, but shall we get started? Jody, talk to me about the evolution both of Ellen from season one to season two, and also how has your perception of her changed? Um, how have you found jumping into a brand new world with who she is when you receive, you know, script 201, the first script in uh, season two? For me, you know, in season one, Ellen Ellen really doesn't know herself very well at all. She does in, in the sort of nuts and bolts way that we all do, but it's um, a real season of self-discovery and self-exploration in terms of, like, waking up to the desire to be an astronaut, waking up to her sexuality, waking up to the reality that, like, those two things cannot be married Mm -hmm. um, and grappling with that. And I think in season two, we find a more evolved, more um, realized isn't the right word, but we find a woman who has continued to grapple with those two things and chosen career and chosen uh, science, chosen first and foremost her passion for um, space exploration. And um, slowly but surely over the course of the season, that becomes an impossibility to just pretend that that is as simple as her life is and as simple as what she wants. Mm -hmm. um, and with 
Pam being reintroduced and her her meeting with Pam again, that same sort of reconciliation battle begins. Um, and we really ask the question, or I really ask the question, and the writers really ask the question of who am I really and what do I really want? Ooh, I got a lot to say about that. Oh, <laughs> goodness. <laughs> Jody, talk to me about threading the needle between Ellen's true devotion to her work and now this sort of wallop of energy and the letter from Pam. Um, more specifically, I mean, I just wrote bookstore, 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 <laughs> because that scene is just, I mean, we've all been there. We've all seen it. someone that we used to love and thought, holy moly, you know? Oh, look at you. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> that was uh, great. You were great. Too, I'm wondering how a bartender turns into a poet. <laughs> no, you always uh, thought more than you said. Yeah. Well, at some point it just went the other way and I would just talk without thinking. <laughs> <laughs> You're still in Texas? Austin. Yeah. Of course. Mm -hmm. I heard you moved to the moon. Yeah, I bought a condo there. Well, why not? You know, that is so funny that you bring up that specific scene. Um, I think in episode seven, Ellen sort of says it out loud. She explains the whole thing uh, because it has been an active choice to choose Korea, to choose NASA, to choose space. She says, it's like my heart stopped beating for 10 years and suddenly started again. Mm -hmm. That's an involuntary thing. You know, I don't think, I think she's done her best to control this and it's truly uncontrollable. Um, I think it's certainly, I would imagine, most human beings can relate to that feeling. We'll see where that leads. We'll see where that goes mm -hmm. in the forthcoming episodes. Stay tuned. But, in, <laughs> but certainly in this moment, um, and I suppose it is captured in that bookstore scene, which, I don't know, as an, you know, I have to divorce my actor self-evaluation biggest critic in the world brain a little bit because I'm not going to let you I do almost, it. I'm not going to let you okay. bag on your own work, <laughs> well, I'm gonna, baby I'm, girl, because let me tell you something. There was a moment there where you were like fidgety, but like nervousy. And it that's was, what I was like, about to say. I just like, was, I was like, oh my God, this is like, you don't really recognize yeah, Ellen in that mm -hmm. moment. She's like, a, she's so girlish. She's so like new and raw and, and nervous. Yeah. Should I wait? Should I just go to the car? Oh God. <laughs> and yeah, so it was part me is like jeepers jody like what what was going on there like that's not the ellen you've been portraying but then you know i really do think what was going on for me when we shot it and certainly the more i reflect on it is that pam does this thing to her you know mm -hmm. she disarms her she uh, simplifies things she makes things undeniable and we get to witness that a little bit and and really truly you know a lot of my work I've chosen uh, for Ellen is about public Ellen or professional mm -hmm. Ellen versus private Ellen. And yeah, and here we find her having to figure out how to thread the needle between both those things and really kind of finding it for a second, mm -hmm. which I think you sort of see toward the end of episode seven when she really allows Pam to comfort her and sort of merges the two worlds in that way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as I say, stay tuned. Stay because tuned. Who knows? 
There is no way I'm allowing our shuttle to dock with the Soviet craft. They'll have access to our most classified technologies. We can't just- Mother, relax. It, it won't ever get to that. We reach our hand out in peace, and when the Soviets smack it away, we come out smelling like roses, and they look like the aggressors. It's a win-win. Tom, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we've got a lot on our plate right now, so planning a PR stunt that's never gonna happen isn't exactly high on my priority list. You'll figure out something. It's what you do. Ren, I want to talk to you about Margot. Where did we leave her, season one? Where do we find her, season two? What's changed? What's remained the same? Hmm. Uh, at the end of season one, so Margot's gone from being in, like, the, the backup Fido uh, person to Fido to flight director. And, you know, Margot's... She's, the ground has kind of like shifted under her feet and she's mm. not she's not 100% sure whether or not everybody's playing on the same team and whether or not there's a a trust in in her leadership and you know for different reasons but as far as where you find her at the beginning of season 2 Margot's instinct that she was going to be running that joint comes true <laughs> her, her prediction yeah. good girl Margot um, yeah i la- i've lately been calling Margot the Janet Yellen of NASA <laughs> um so yeah so she's she's in charge but as far as like beyond that i think all of us felt this kind of onus for like, who is this person 10 years later? But I also feel like, yes, I'm a very different person than I was 10 years ago in some ways and in others, I'm not at all. Mm-hmm. And I remember Ron saying to us after our first read through, something akin to don't have the urge to try and like do better than what we did in season one, like play the scene. And I felt like th- that took a huge weight off my shoulders. And then, you know, also actually being on set the first day in costume with, you know, all of the beautiful work that our crew does, I just realized, oh, wow, there's so much that I don't need to try and, like, jam in here because it's, you know, the whole crew and the story, like, it's all lifting me up. And I really can just be in the moment and not think about that. And then I also would say, you know, watching all of season one, I just, I'm so thankful for our amazing editors because there were also some moments that I was just like, oh, you saved me. (laughs) I remember, like, some Greek tragedy and histrionics and I was so glad that I was just like, oh, thank you. I'm so glad you didn't use those 18 (laughs) other takes that were garbage um, because I was trying too hard. Ren, I want to talk about the 18 takes because I think that a lot of the folks (laughs) who listen to this podcast, some are, you know, fans of the show. Some are uh, fans of filmmaking. You know, I feel like we all spend so much time preparing in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And then we get to come to set and it's very rare that you have a scene where you just can ride the wave over and over again completely in the moment and just I don't know, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of fly. And I feel like in season 1 the biggest opportunity in my experience was working with Column because we we kind of were almost doing like 
a, you know, like a play, mm-hmm. you know, and Colm and I were so used to each other at that point. And I trust that the people that are on the back end of this, both like all of our writing team, the directors, the editors, they're going to be able to sift through like how this scene needs to fit in the story and kind of like where it needs to land. Mm-hmm. And my job is to get out of my own way, be prepared and to give them like the widest range of options that I can. Mm-hmm. Sometimes too many options. No. (laughs) Ben, no, Ben, Ben can speak to that. There are times when I come in and you can see Matt and Ben being like, Ren, this is not a five-minute scene about the vending machine. Yeah, but you also win the award for the most amount of, like, conscientious Mm decision-making prior to a rehearsal. Right, Ben? Like, I'm going to give that to Ren. I will say, when Ren... When I see Ren on set with her binder, um, <laughs> she has made I, some choices. She, she like, she, yeah, more than anyone, she's made choices, but she has. She always asks the questions that, in the moment, you're like, wow, she's not only thought about this, she's thought about this in a way that even I probably haven't thought about this. True, and I love that because it's for a writer. I mean, it's very challenging. You have to go. Okay, I need to know the answer to everything because an actress like Ren will definitely read into everything, mm-hmm. and I, I think. Without a doubt, Ren, I think, is sometimes too hard on herself when she talks about the 18 takes. Um, she's amazing. And you're right, this season especially, Ren, how you you think about the trajectory of your character from someone in the back rooms of JSC to being the head of JSC. Mm-hmm. That's not a simple trajectory to really capture. And Ben, while you're there, I want you to talk to me about how Margot has sort of found her way as the the, the head B in charge in Mission Control. <laughs> so let's talk about it. HBIC. That's the, that's the title. That's the HBIC. On her exactly. Yeah, HBIC. Yeah. Margot Madison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that to me came from season one. I think what you saw in that character in season one was that she is driven and she will get there, especially in the way she handled the situation with Saturn V. Mm -hmm. I think she had a choice there. I think on one hand, she's accomplished what she set out to do, but I think there's something missing too um, in her life. In in order to accomplish that goal, she has sacrificed. It's not just astronauts that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I think we like to say the people behind the scenes as well. Um, And I think that's sort of introducing more in season two, this idea of like what is not a part of her life. And I think this relationship with uh, Sergei that builds, especially in these episodes, I'd say, Mm -hmm. um, hints at something that I think maybe she's put away, uh, for lack of a better word, in order to to get to where she is. And I think the back and forth between them, I think, is wonderful and subtle and beautiful. And can you see from a place of, you know, these are two people who work for the two superpowers of the Cold War, like Mm -hmm. they're coming together as scientists, um, as thinkers, but then also as people. And I think that there's something in these episodes that really, in watching them again too, you just see how the two of you um, play off each other and it works really well. And for the first time you're seeing another side to Margot, she hasn't seen herself, I don't know. Ren, what's the side that Ben is talking about? Is it a vulnerability? Is it a sensuality? Is it, uh, what's underneath there? You know, one of the things I really like about where we landed as a team with that story was that I think there are a lot of moments where you're not 100% sure. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's good. But I will say that kind of a pivotal episode for that is episode six, uh, when the Soviets arrive. And 
you know, for lack of a better word or phrase, um, you know, I think Margot and Sergey have both been handed a burger of a situation, <laughs> which is like, can you make this thing happen? But also, like, you have no tools to make it happen. Mm-hmm. You can't give an inch. You can't portray any weakness. And so much of it is about the politics. And I think what gradually happens in that episode is that Margot realizes, oh, wow, you are in the exact same position that I'm in. Mm-hmm. And you're probably the only person that actually understands what this is like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so often I feel like Margot is such a singular force that it's, in some ways, it's a little bit of a relief to realize, like, oh, you want to actually, like, I can work with you and we can make this happen together. And these two people, while they're not romantically in love, they know, they get each other, Mm -hmm. they understand one another in a way that nobody else in their life does. Yeah, I think like Margot Margo hasn't had a connection like that probably. I mean You don't know what happens at that jazz club, Ben. You don't know. <laughs> Margot is pulling so only much knows. tail, so much jazz <laughs> tail. It's not even funny. Yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. We need the spin-off with you at the jazz club. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and tap lessons. I really want Margot to take tap lessons. I think that would be the most hilarious. Tap is so mathematic. This all this all checks out. This is a secret place for you. What makes you say that? It would seem unwise for us to meet at a place where we might be recognized. I don't see any of your colleagues. It is a secret place for me. But not because of the music? No, not the music. I just don't choose to share this part of my life with many people. It's private something I do for for me. So to have a shared secrets. Ben, I want you to talk about when you're writing these female characters, how do you sort of find a way to explore the natural female aspect of them and also tamp that down because these women are in a predominantly male field and they need to be taken seriously. It's interesting writing about this now and looking back at the past because a lot of what we're talking about in terms of, you know, women in these positions, the sacrifices they had to make, especially then. And now we're at a time when it seems like that's starting to change. And the fact that it's taken this long is crazy. And even as much as it's changing, it's still challenging. Because the truth is to have a family and to have a career is very difficult. And I think if this pandemic has showed me anything, it's how difficult it is for a woman to function as both a mother and to pursue her career. I think it's an ongoing thing of, is the sacrifice worth it? I think we talk about it with our astronauts too. When you look at um, Tracy, you look at Karen, they're also dealing with that in many Mm. ways, right? The sacrifices they had to make. So it's not just a perspective, I think, of women who focus on their career, but also women who tried to have it both or just decided to go towards family and not career. We, I think of the show, we try not to uh, pass judgment on one choice or the other, which I think is done a lot right now. Mm-hmm. I think if you're doing something you love um, and you put so much of yourself into it, there is a cost to that. Mm-hmm. There's a cost to that. And you see less of your family or you see, you, you experience less of those things. So this idea of having it all 
is a nice idea in theory, but I, I don't know how true it is. Well, I think that, you know, right now we're talking about Ellen and Margot, but just a line that punched me in the throat when I read it was episode two, when Danielle is talking to her high Bob gang. It's the first time we've seen Danielle. And, you know, we discover that Clayton has passed away recently. And, you know, one of the lines she says is, um, I don't regret these last years I've spent with Clayton. I don't regret them at all, but now I'm ready to go back. Now you're holding up. I'm okay. I just miss him. Yeah. Day by day, you know? Day by day. These last nine years, they, they were just so hard. And Clayton, seeing him struggle like that, and he was in so much pain. I'm you okay? I'm fine. Really, I'm just, I'm trying to get back to my old self, honestly. We haven't seen what happened in those 10 years. We saw in season one that Clayton was beginning to fall apart. And although Danielle may not be a mother, we're definitely seeing how her devotion to her marriage is really, you know, it's 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 a distraction. It doesn't stop her from doing her job, um, but it weighs on her. And so to then see her in season two and see that she has given over herself. She's continued to work, of course, but has given over herself to his care, to his health. And ultimately she loses him. And now she realizes, I got to get this back. And so I think it's one of the beautiful things that I love about our show is that the women who watch the show, the people who watch the show, they may not be astronauts, but everyone knows what it's like to have to set aside your personal life to dive in to the thing that you love, to your career and the ways in which they can be parallel, where they can be juxtaposed, and where one can supersede the other and be in direct competition with each other. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's hard, and it's and the truth is it's harder for women, mm-hmm. I think. It's something I think that was really important to us from early on. I mean, one of the first things I think that we talked about in the creation of the show was the story of Mercury 13, you know, and these women who weren't given the chance to be astronauts at that time. And they put the work, they put the sacrifice, they, they did everything and they weren't able to get it. And I think what we always are careful with, I think, with the show and even in season two is, yes, this is alternate history, you know, and it's the ideas we're moving towards a more hopeful future, but we never want to make it easy. We want to make it feel real. And I feel like for all the hope, for all the improvements, for all the, you know, the ability of women making it to space, we didn't want to go into season two and say, oh, now it's all easy. It's all mm-hmm. easy. There's always a backlash to progress, I feel. And I think it's something we wanted to explore, that the way to progress has some obstacles. What do you want, Margo? I won't. I can't go back and try and explain why I did what I did 10 years ago. Thank you, because it was humiliating enough the first time around. But I can offer you a job at NASA. As what, a janitor? Yes, or to break it to you, but I'm not in the family business anymore. Systems engineer. Ren, although Margot is not a mother, it seems like her relationship with Aleda this season has been sort of an odd kind of maternal, sororal, that's even a word, relationship. In that scene in the trailer of 
her being so angry with you and you leaving the trailer and kind of huffing and puffing to yourself and, you know, talking to yourself as you drove away. Talk to me more about Margot's relationship with Aleda. Why is there so much pain there from Aleda to Margot? Just, just go into that because I think that relationship is really complex and beautiful. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on it all. Yeah, do we ever get to find out what the big betrayal was? Sorry, I'm just going to pipe in there as an audience. Jody, this is not your show. I'm kidding. Sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. So anyway, my question is, do we know what the big betrayal was? (laughs) (laughs) The betrayal was that um, when Aleda's father is deported, you know, and accused of, of having stolen, you know, NASA stuff for for commie spies, that she doesn't have a place to go. Like, like the whole house has been ransacked and, and she doesn't really know what she's going to do. And she goes to Margot and she's looking for, basically for some answers. And also she kind of wants, she wants to live with Margot. I think she actually asks, you know, and, and Margot chooses her job over, in that moment, she's basically like, I, I have to go. Mm-hmm. So Aleda then is forced to figure out like what, the hell she does without her dad. And she's she also doesn't have like residency status, et cetera, et cetera. Ben, am I getting that right? Yeah, no, exactly right. I mean, I think that was a scene we talked about a lot in the writer's room, you know, in terms of like the movie version is, yes, come live with me. Yes, come, here's my... <laughs> and the real life version we ask ourselves in that situation, who of us is actually going to do that? Mm-hmm. And the truth is not many, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, and that, especially if you are in charge, you know, like in your job uh, and what, Margot was going through at that time. I don't love the word betrayal about it because I think, I don't think it's that simple, but it's something we argued about a lot, actually, that some people are like, oh, it is a betrayal. And other people, no, I mean, that's what, who would do that? That's a crazy a huge request. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. In that situation. So I, I like that it's not clearly one thing or the mm-hmm. other. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, Lita definitely, as we see this season, has held a little bit of resentment, I think, about that. Because I think of what happened to her afterwards, you know, not necessarily from that moment. I definitely initially fell into the camp of like, this is a crazy request. And, (laughs) you know, like, I'm, what? Like, my life's not built for that, you know? Like, I've always imagined that Margot's house, she never got around to furnishing it fully. And it's got, like, lawn furniture in it because (laughs) she just didn't have time. Um, so it's like, where would where would Aleda even sleep? But I also think, you know, on the flip side of that is Margot knows what it's like to be let down. Mm. So palpably. She knows what it's like to feel like somebody's choosing something over their relationship together. And she also knows she wasn't there for Aleda when Aleda needed her, you know. And I think Margot can hold both of those things at the same time. She can hold both, like, the guilt that comes with, like... I feel like I I know that I failed you as a, a person and at the same time be like, but how dare you ask me that in that moment? Because of course I'm going to, you know, like people's lives are at stake. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like that's part of it. And then you, on top of that, you put that Margot, Margot's way more comfortable with numbers than with emotion. Mm-hmm. Margot's way more comfortable with work than with private stuff. Right. Uh you know, and it was really fun to, to figure out, like, how much of what does she carry into that? I want to get to Mars as much as you do. Believe me. You're going to be a great asset to me, Alan. You are as genuine as the sunrise. 
people respond to that. Thank you, Tom. It's very kind. You get used to all the gamesmanship. We all play different roles with different people. I'm a different Thomas Paine with Reagan than I was with Nixon or Tip O'Neill or Margot Madison. And there's yet another me with my wife when I go home at night. The trick is not to lose track of who you really are. I don't think that we can do the episodes five, six, and seven wrap-up any justice without talking about the loss of poor Thomas Paine. May he rest in peace. Joe, talk to me about how, in many ways, Ellen kind of becomes a Thomas Paine Jr. You know, even I notice in the scene in the bar where she's drinking the same drink that he's drinking and sort of like playing in this boys club kind of thing. She dyes her hair red. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Starts wearing spectacles. Right. Yeah. Um, so from the outside looking in, I'm looking at it, I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute, where is Ellen? Where is the Ellen that we know who is sort of like heartfelt and wants to do the right thing? And now she's kind of becoming this sort of bureaucratic bad guy. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it all comes to a head in the final scene that Ellen is in anyway of uh, episode seven where that we like to affectionately call the scene where Ellen rips her face off. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, No, not really. But truly, it's the culmination of her, the sort of like little growth spurt she's been on that Tom has guided her through, which is to say that coming down from the moon, Um, integrating into the administration world. I think at the beginning, she really did see things in a much more black and white way. Mm. She was really like, it's Mars. It's about Mars. It's about Mars. Mm -hmm. And anyone that's placing obstacles in that path just don't get it. Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, the more she learns, the more she comes to realize how nuanced these things are, how much give and take there is, how much negotiation is a part of the job. Mm And, you know, even though we're dealing with a woman in her 40s, I think there really has been a lot of naivete and purity Mm -hmm. in in her thinking. And Tom becomes reluctant in terms of Ellen's putting him on this pedestal, but he becomes her her mentor in this way. Um, And the more she gets to know him, the more she sees a man she completely relates to, a man that she can empathize with. And so his ways, his methods seem less obtuse, seem less like obstacles. And yeah, so through that period, they also become close and she starts to dress like him and drink like him and behave like him. (laughs) No, But um, yeah, there's a huge loss there. By the time Tom dies, there's a huge loss there. And I think we see that with Margot as well, who who also hasn't always seen eye to eye with Tom. But we've sort of gotten to see the the human behind the suit. Mm -hmm. Ben, did you guys know all along that Payne would die and the way that he would die? Or did that sort of unfurl as you guys got into working out season two? Or did you know from the start? First off, let me just say that actor Dan Donahue is... Excellent. Finger snaps to Dan. Truly one of the best scene partners you could ask for. Excellent. Totally. And we tend to kill off our favorite uh, actors <laughs> on the show. And we we like to, we do the opposite of other shows. We're like, let's kill the ones we love the most. Uh, you guys <laughs> no, take the, <laughs> the phrase "kill your darlings" to a much more literal right. level on the show. <laughs> yeah, this is heartbreaking for us, and I, I think we didn't necessarily set out thinking that um, he was on that plane. I think we set out knowing that KAL 007 this actually mm-hmm. happened in our real mm-hmm. history. And we wanted this to be a part of an alternate history and, and affect the events. And yeah, the more we talked about 
Ellen's rise into a more of a political animal, mm-hmm. if you will, we realized that his death would help launch that mm-hmm. in a way, you know, it would help get her there. The same way in many ways in season one, I feel like, you know, when allowed sort of Margot to, to spread her wings mm-hmm. in a way, I, I, <laughs> <take> a, <laughs> replace her face. Um, what's that phrase, Jody? Uh, rip, rips her face off. <laughs> rips her face off, mm-hmm. that's right. Revealing a whole nother face <laughs> underneath. Yeah. So, yeah, it was this heartbreaking realization of him being on that plane. One, it makes it a more organic part of the show that we know someone there. But also it felt like the right time for for Ellen mm-hmm. to rise up into that role. Just when she and Pam were making out and loving, mm-hmm. loving things. <laughs> Justice yeah. for Pam. Timing. The timing is never <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah, see, you know, it is interesting, like you're saying, Chris, to see Ellen sort of have to fill these shoes and, and in a time that, is really tricky too. This is, it's, you know, a lot is going on. And as a result of this accident, as we're going to continue to see in the next few episodes, the impact that has puts her in a, in a tough uh, Mm -hmm. position. (laughs) Very tough. Well, you guys, I have had an amazing time chatting with you all. I feel like time has completely flown by. In our last round table, we did a little, game called Rose and Thorn. Joe, I'll start with you. In this whole process, what is your rose? What is your thorn? What is my rose and what is my thorn? Ah! Um, oh my goodness, there's too many roses. Um, Me, your first rose. You're my rose, Crystal Marshall. <laughs> and the second and the third. I'm the dozen child. You're, you're the petals on the outside and also the bud on the inside. Nice. Um <laughs> You know, it's really hard. I think the thorn, I would say it's easier to start with the negative thing because there's far fewer. Like, I just love this character so much. I love our show so much that I wish we all got to do it all year round or like I got to be at work every single day mm-hmm. and or I, my hunger mm-hmm. is is always my thorn. And the rose is, is the opposite of that. Everybody in our cast and crew, particularly our crew, is such an incredible wealth of knowledge and creativity that I I don't know, I just feel really lucky. I feel like this show demands a lot of attention, investigation, and like growth from me as a human. Mm -hmm. So that's always my rose every single year. And then truly, we joke that you were my rose, but this cast (laughs) has been an unexpected gift in my life Mm -hmm. as well. Ren, what about you? What's your rose? What's your thorn? Well, since this is the last thing, I'm trying to figure out how much gossip I can work into this because I thought we were going to be doing lots of gossip. Um, I'm only going to do one thorn, the killing of Dan Donahue, Mm. because I remember the first time that he and I got to do just like a two-hander, and it's the scene between Payne and Margot right after the big conference meeting about how are we going to pull off the Apollo-Soyuz mission. That's a great scene. Oh, I can't even remember where the cameras were, but it was more of like Dan and I just getting to have fun. And I know we have many theater nerds on our show, but two like epic theater dork nerds just getting to like play. And because that scene's written so well and because he's a great actor, it was just so much fun. And I remember as soon as we'd done like the first setup. I ran around the corner to Nicole Beatty who was on set and I was like, more Dan Donahue, more Dan Donahue. And this was before 
we were shooting five and six. So I had no idea that he was about to go bye-bye. So that was definitely a thorn, having that much fun with him and then being like, can we maybe just, like, just come up with some deleted scenes? Can that be like something we put on the <laughs> Apple website? It's like behind the scenes. But um, seriously, Ben, Chris Bauer and then Dan Donahue. Oh, oh man. man. What's Jerks. going on? I'm, I'm with telling you, you we got to be careful. You don't want to be too good or, or we'll kill you. <laughs> For our audience, uh, Chris Bauer played Deke Slayton last year. And then as far as my my rose, oh, I, I have two two roses, uh, three. One is Chris Marshall. Mm, I'm a lot of folks' roses, girl. Get in line. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, two is I had an opportunity this year to do a little bit of shadowing on set, and I just got a tiny glimpse into the true mastery that is like each person's ability to just bring an incredible amount of wisdom and experience and artistry to what they do. Mm. You know, I was watching a scene that was set up in Jamestown and I was standing next to our focus puller and he just started telling me what they were doing with the lighting. And I could see it starting to happen the way that they were like creating space. And I mean, it was just like a masterclass. And just being on the show, playing Margot Madison, she's my rose every freaking day. Nice. You guys give me like a bazillion things to play with and it's really all about like how do, how do I even include half of it? More vending machine scenes, please. <laughs> ben and Devi, what's your rose? What's your thorn? Take us home. Well, I agree with the thorns of killing off Deke and, and Thomas were, was very difficult. And two actors that I love and two characters that I love. It's interesting. I, I think sometimes Killing off the people you love is difficult, but it also makes it more impactful on some level. But mm -hmm. it's hard to say goodbye to such great people, great humans. My other thorn, I got to say, is is COVID. Mm. <laughs> um, aye, aye, aye. The, uh, we, you know, COVID hit us, as you guys know, while we were shooting the last two episodes. And so having to, to come back to set in that situation, although we made it as safe as possible, I think it was hard because you did miss out on a little bit of that camaraderie and the idea of being around people because we had to be so careful to be away from people. Mm -hmm. So it kind of does link to my rose as well in a way because I think one of the things I enjoy the most is, you know, there's there's a lot to this job, you know, but I think you get really busy. You don't sleep a lot. There's it's constant emails and calls all the time. But there are those days, there are those moments where you walk to set and there's, you know, like a hundred people in there. And the thing you put on that page is being brought to life, you know, the, by, by everyone, by the crew, by every single person in there is doing something to bring that to life. Mm -hmm. And then you have these amazing actors giving life to these words and elevating it. And that is really the rose of this, you know, in some way, the ability to kind of see that come to life as a writer is incredible. It's an incredible gift. I thank you guys for, for bringing that to life in such a beautiful way this season as well. And I hope COVID doesn't get in the way of that too much. <laughs> yeah. I miss hugs on set. I know. For sure. yeah. I just, I, yeah. I want to thank you guys for doing this, um, for coming on and chatting with me today. I just, I'm just so <laughs> cozy and happy. I just, <laughs> I love chatting with you all. You guys are just put your hearts out there for the world to see. And it is just so beautiful. I feel so grateful to be a part of this process with you all. And, um, and I just love you guys. 
It's making me really excited to get back to work. Me too. I'll tell you that much. Me yeah, too. So thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, this has been another wonderful episode of the For All Mankind podcast. And uh, yeah, that's all. Catch up on the next coming episodes because the Seagram finale is coming up and it's going to be good. <laughs> okay, say goodbye, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> On the next episode, I'll be speaking with some remarkable people who have helped pave the way for spaceflight. From a member of the Mercury 13 to the first Asian-American commander of the International Space Station, we'll hear about the ways in which these pioneers of space travel have ensured that no one gets left behind. This is Chris Marshall, Safe and Sound Earthside. Thanks for listening to the For All Mankind podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed. And watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by At Will Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati. Produced by Chris Marshall, Ashley Taylor, Patrick Farrell, and associate producer Dominique Ibekwe. Production coordination by Latavia Young. Sound editing by the At Will Media team. Sound designed and mixed by 1000 Birds. <laughs>